0: Back when scientists started trying to map out the universe, all the stars and etc., they they really had to come up with a new standard of measurement, if you will, because the distances they were dealing with were so so vast. And so what they came up with, or they identified, was what they call a light year. Now, light travels pretty quickly. 180-something thousand miles per second. I don't know exactly how fast it is, but I think it's just a little faster than I can run. I mean, that's really, that's really moving along. So in the course of, of a year, light travels like 6 trillion plus miles. And I don't, I don't even know how you begin to put that on a, on a scale. But when you think about a star that's 30, mile, 30 light years away, it creates an interesting phenomenon. Christina and I were married in July of 1984. It was eighty four, right? Yeah, it was eighty four. <laughs> twenty six years. This, this July, on the on our wedding night, if we had looked up and seen a star, a star, and that day it had blown up, we'd still be seeing it today, twenty six years later, because it would take thirty years before that flash to arrive in a, it, it, at our planet. So even here, you know, we'd have we'd have four plus years left to look at it, even though the star wouldn't be there anymore. It's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? It's that kind of phenomenon that concerns Jesus in the letter to the church at Sardis from Revelation chapter 3. He's to be a church that looks like it's a church, but it really has stopped being a church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. I want you to know that I'm aware that this series that we've been working through out of the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation are very heavy letters. They've given us a lot to reflect upon spiritually. They've been very challenging in terms of... of in some ways, almost making us feel guilty because there's so much room for us to grow and to mature and to change in our, in our spiritual journeys. But I want you to know that the prevailing spirit of these letters is always a message of hope. Jesus is speaking to the sickness, to the, to the difficulties, spiritual vitality, the way to really be healthy in Christ. And, and so today as we come... To this third letter, to the church at Sardis. This is this is inland to Pergamum, and now we've come further south down to Sardis. And he writes to the church, to the angel of the church in Sardis. Write. If you're following along on your pew Bibles, you're going to find this text on page one thousand and forty-one. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars and from chapter 1, there's this imagery of Jesus holding the Holy Spirit and, the, and walking among the seven lampstands which stand for the, the, represent the seven churches he's writing to. And the seven stars are really the, the angels in the, in, the, in the leadership that speak to the churches. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Your light's still kind of going through space, but your star's blown up. It says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. him before my Father and before His angels. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The spiritual issue can and come up short of all that God offers and all God intends to do in and through our lives. And their challenge is complacency. And it's really Im- interesting that this church at Sardis took on their culture so much that they became complacent in their walk with God. Just a little bit about the city of Sardis. I don't want to go into this too a lot as much, but it's really interesting that this city, which is located about 30 or 40 miles south of Pergamum, it's actually was built up on a bluff that dominated a major river, Plane that ran east to west, and, and five roads that were significant in being able to crisscross modern-day Turkey, ancient um, Asia Minor, cross right at Sardis, and it became a, a thriving metropolitan area. It was a, a large commercial center, and it was a, a, like a booming city, and it was built up on a bluff that was 1,500 feet above the valley below. And there was only one little land ramp that kind of came up to the bluff and the rest of it was surrounded on three sides by just these almost like sharp cliffs that went down. No, no way for an army to be able to climb up. And so this was a very secure citadel, if you will. All they had to do was build a big fortification in front of the ramp, and they were set. And so it became the capital of an, of an empire called Lydia. And it was a, a very influential empire in Asia Minor, this bluff. And Cyrus follows them, and they kind of settle into the city below them, down the valley. And, and the king of, of uh, Lydia, he thinks that they're so virtually virtual cliff. Pick up his helmet and climb back up. So the Persians send a small excursion up in the night, and there's nobody on guard. The, the Lydians are totally complacent. And so this unconquerable city is conquered because of their complacency. Now, that was about 565, 570 B.C. you think you'd do it once. You know, fool me once, shame on me. You know, fool me, you know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It happened to them again 250 years later. They got so confident that they didn't even pay attention. There wasn't any urgency or care. They were complacent. This church had grown complacent. They said they have a reputation here they have a they have a reputation but there's no reality they have image but there's really no identity they have programs they have deeds but there's really no power you know there's, there's service they're doing stuff but there's no spirit that's making anybody any impact and and with that they were living their lives with such a, a lack of urgency they were living out their faith with such an, a lack of urgency that their faith and their righteousness had become so benign that to see them muster up the troops to bother with these people. Because they got no spiritual power. They're not making a difference anyways. They're just kind of sleepwalking through everything. So we don't even need to bother to pay attention to them. They weren't even a blip in way that nobody ever notices. And that can happen not only as individuals, but as a church. And, and I want to... Spend a couple of moments here before we go on and look at what Jesus says is the solution to complacency. The solution to living our spiritual lives with this lack of urgency. Before we move to the solutions, I, I want to look maybe at some things that tell us that you and I are living with a spirit of complacency in our faith in the 21st century. And, and, and unfortunately, these are kind of intermingled, some between individual things and corporate things, but I think that's so... It's so consistent with the fact that our spiritual lives are intermingled with the body of Christ. Faith is always a team sport. You can't do faith on your own, and therefore you really can't separate out. It's like saying, well, the quarterback was really bad on Sunday, but you can't blame it all on him if his offensive line isn't blocking and the receivers aren't running their routes, etc., cetera, et cetera." It's a team thing. What are some contemporary signs of complacency? And as I thought and prayed over this this week, one of the ones that just jumped out to me, experience and God's Spirit brings a sense of that needs to change in my life, and then nothing changes, you're complacent. It's almost like we've boiled religion down to just having an emotional reaction, but there's really no change in our lives. When conviction of sin does not lead to any real repentance, any real change, then we're just going through the motions. We're just complacent. And that's true about sin. It's also true about the spiritual disciplines that need to be a part of our lives. When when we say, I know I should pray more, and we don't, we're complacent. Period. You know, sometimes when we look at the issues of sin, it's easier to get worked up as a church about some things. Things like drunkenness or adultery or murder or stealing or sexual immorality and those kinds of things. We, we even as believers sometimes will know, we know that that's wrong and I've got to do something about it. But there's all kinds of other sins that we just tolerate in our midst. Anger. Bitterness. Critical spirit. Self-centeredness. Materialism. Greed. Pride, prayerlessness, neglecting the word of God, neglecting the family of God, neglecting our families, neglecting the kingdom, poor stewardship of resources, gluttony, you know, less than, having marriages that are less than what God intends, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Lack of service, lack of giving, lack of commitment. We tolerate all that stuff. And we hear God speak into our lives and then we don't do anything about it. And the word tells us we're complacent. We have a reputation for being alive, but we're really dead. The list could go on and on, but I think there's more than just one sign we can look at. I think we can also recognize that we're in a state of spiritual complacency when spiritual activity doesn't really lead to any kind of kingdom. A whole lot is happening. I'm reading the Bible, you know, but I'm never really hearing from God and nothing's ever really changing. The Word seems lifeless to me. I pray but designed you as a person who's been reborn in Jesus Christ to bring glory to His name. We go through all kinds of religious activity, but there's really no, any, there's really no power. When, God's, when spiritual activity, when religious activity doesn't lead to spiritual impact, we're complacent. This next one, and I'm going to tread lightly here, because I don't want to sound judgmental. But when spiritual leaders literally have to beg and plead and push and prod to get believers to do what they need, know they should be doing anyways, we're complacent. And when, when, you know, if we have to put on a good show every Sunday... And make sure we end right on time in order for you to be consistent worship attenders. There's a problem. When we've got to have a major emphasis to get you involved in a Bible study group or etc., there's a problem. When, when we have to come before God anyways, we're complacent. You know, and I've got to tell you, I, I was telling Christina last night, and I thought about this issue, because this is where a lot of the church mills. Of trying to come up with the latest and greatest. To get people on board with the great gift that God's given them through new life in Jesus Christ. When is it going to end? You know, uh, you know it's, it's, you know, and there are incredible things being done. And I try to listen and learn from all those things. And some of you observe and you watch various ministries on television that have incredible activities that are going on. And what he's already attained for you in Jesus Christ. And, and it makes me sad. Because not even the life giving death of Jesus Christ is enough to get us off of our spiritual fannies, up off of the couch, and into the life that God's called us to have. But when spiritual leaders have to plead with you to do a part it's very we've made it a personal thing. That God's job is to make my life better. That's not biblical. When we're asking questions like, well, what do I get out of this? How's it going to benefit me? How much is it going to cost me? How much time is it going to take? Is it convenient for me? When those kinds of things are what dominate our spiritual thinking, we're complacent. But when we're asking questions like, how is it that God has made me to, to assist, to empower the body of Christ? We're on the right track. How is it that God wants to use me as a part of the kingdom of God to to make a difference? How can I be a blessing to others? How do we together corporately glorify God? How do we be God's body as a church? Those are the things that indicate spiritual vitality and spiritual health. So what do you do if you're spiritually complacent? Well, Jesus kind of lays it out pretty specifically here through the Apostle John. Let me give you just three bits and pieces from this. The very first thing, and I yelled this really loud in the first service, and I'm going to back off a little bit. But he just literally says, just wake up. Just wake up. What does he say? Be alert. Be alert, you know? Just wake up, you know? And, and, And the question that emerged to me, what's the matter with today? If, you, if God's speaking to you and you need to make a change in your life today, whether it's to be somebody who says, you know what, I've I believed in God, but I've really never submitted, it. I don't understand how Jesus fits in with all his forgiveness. I've got all these questions. You know, what's the matter with today to figure that all out? So you know, I, I've been, I know I've got this sin. Maybe it's a, a lack of forgiveness, or maybe I don't really want to commit to the body, whatever, but God's been speaking to me. What's the matter with today to deal with it? If you've got a sin in your life, you know, whether it's some form of addiction or just whatever, you know, and God's been, what's the matter with today with dealing with it? Live with some urgency is what Jesus says. Wake up! Be alert! And then he says, strengthen. Strengthen what remains which is about to die for I have not found your works complete before my God. He's just really literally asking us to become passionate about and to be active and to be committed to the things that we know are right in following Jesus. It's amazing to me with all the stuff that we know about God that we get paralyzed by the stuff that we don't know. It's amazing to me. Many of us, if not all of us, know. You know what? I really need to be reading my Bible. I need to be praying. I need to be serving. I need to be giving. I need to be telling others about my faith in Christ. You know, I, you know we, we know this stuff. Just do it. But we get confused. I don't know about how, you know, salvation if I can explain it right. We get paralyzed by the stuff we don't know. Just do the stuff. Strengthen what remains before it's gone. Another example. You know and I've dealt with this several different times over the last few years in ministry you know and, and this is just an example of, of the way we get paralyzed you know de- dealt with couples who have said you know what you know we're, we're you know I'm living together with my boyfriend or I'm living together with my girlfriend I know it's not right in the eyes of God I need to change this I don't know how we're going to afford to live separately because they don't know how they what they don't know paralyzes them to do what they know is right Man, just Do it. Strengthen. What remains is what Jesus says. And he does so that we can experience hope. Strengthen the conviction before it's gone. Lastly, he says to remember. He says, remember, therefore, in verse 3, what under the fact that on Easter, the stone was moved from in front of the the tomb. You know, I, I keep mine in my backpack, a place where I reach in for my MP3 player and... My pens and... And he could have made a fly halfway across the planet. Why why did it have to be moved? It was moved so that you and I would have undeniable conviction that God has moved in human history so we can live different lives. The gospel is that Jesus loved you enough and that God was serious enough about sin that he was willing for his own son to die in your place. The gospel is not about, well, God loved me so much he died for me. It's It's not just that. It's that God loved you enough that he sent his only son to die for the horrificness of sin so that you and I can be changed to live his glorious life, to bring glory to him. It says, remember, remember. It was interesting, out in the lobby, a couple of people pulled their stones out, showed them to me as they left after the first service. In the midst of this difficult word, because if you're like me, maybe you've experienced some conviction today as you've struggled with this, there is a word of hope and promise in this text. There is the faithful remnant. As he says here, he says, but, verse 4, but you have a few people in Sardis who've not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me. Our are models for you to follow and people to connect with. And he promises the victor's gown. This white robe that we'll wear for you. book. citizenship book. You know? And you, you were just a nobody then. Jesus says, listen, I'm never going to do that to you. I'm never going to do that to you. You've got security with me. And then he provides us with the opportunity. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And I think I'd be remiss today in the spirit of urgency and of remembering and of strengthening if I didn't provide you with just a few moments to listen to what God's saying to you today and today to do something about it. So in just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer and then we're just going to have some time of silence. It's not going to go on forever, so don't get too nervous. But, you know, it's just a wonderful thing for you just to sit and to listen to God. I'd encourage you, you know, to come forward and just pray at the altar, you know. I'll be here if you want somebody to pray with you to say, you know what, I've made up my mind about this. I want things to be different. I want somebody to pray with me so I know that I'm accountable to somebody for what I've just chosen to do today. We've heard your call for us to listen. And we listen now. Speak, please. Still, quiet voice of the whirl of the air conditioners. We've heard your voice today. God help us if it doesn't change us. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing a concluding song to our Lord this morning?